Hello, friends, and welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, a best-selling author of the book, U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. And I created the U-Turn book and the podcast as a place to help you connect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week, I want to bring a guest on with the intention of helping you expand what's possible for you, both in your confidence, whether it's in work or love, and just in life in general. So let's get into this week's episode. U-Turn friends, I'm so excited today to invite a very special friend onto the show, Rachel Luna. She's an entrepreneur, a certified master coach, an international speaker, and host of the Permission to Offend podcast, where she talks about worth, wealth, and faith by sharing really radical, honest, and vulnerable stories from her life. She lives in Jacksonville, Florida. She's been a friend of mine for years, and she's been on the podcast before, and she has a new book coming out right now called Permission to Offend, which is a compassionate guide for living unfiltered and unafraid. So this is what the world, I think, really needs right now. It's not just funny and engaging, you know, and sometimes gut-wrenching, um, but it's really about understanding suffering and self-rejection. Um, Rachel's gone through a lot, and I'm excited to ask her about it. Um, she even actually served in the Marine Corps for a decade, so I think she's one of very few people I know in the, I don't even know what space to call this, personal development space that also somehow worked in defense um, and military. So without further ado, thank you so much, uh, Rachel, for coming back on the show. Do you want to get your daily dose of greens but not feel like you're eating dirt? (laughs) This episode is sponsored in part by our dear friends over at Athletic Greens. And what I love about their greens powder is that they're not only carbon neutral, but they taste incredible. I started taking Athletic Greens because I really wanted to get all the nutrients and all the vitamins that I could in one swoop. And I just couldn't bring myself to keep drinking those celery, veggie, juice, smoothie things. I just wanted something that tasted good and was good for me. And their greens are tropical, tasty, and yes, their travel packs are perfect for road trips and getaways. So you never really have to miss out. I've been on Athletic Greens for the past year and I just can't seem to live without it anymore. I've passed it on to a couple of friends and now it's become a staple for all of us. I actually look forward to taking my greens every morning. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of nutrients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, focus, and your anti-aging, all the things. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient, daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. I actually even put it in a smoothie sometimes. To make it easy, head on over to athleticgreens.com slash U-turn, and you're going to get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is head to athleticgreens.com slash U-turn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for having me back. What an honor. Yes. <laughs> Yay. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit about your your book and what led you at this point in your life to write this book? 
Mm, okay, well, I'll start with the second part of the question, what led me to write the book. I actually had started writing a different book altogether many years ago, and I was going to call it Girl Confident. And it was going to be, you know how they tell you, you, you need a book. It's got to be your calling card. And, and then a book should be the breakdown of your course. And that way, whoever can't afford your course, they buy the book. And honestly, Ashley, you know me. I'm such a real, real that that felt so fake. And it took me years because I don't want to do that. I, I was really adamant that if I was going to write a book, I wanted to write a book that had depth and substance and really facilitated transformation, not just gave me a couple of nuggets here and there to get me started, but that could change the way that the reader thought. And so a couple of years ago, we were, um, I was at an event. I say weeks, my husband was with me. <laughs> But I was speaking at an event and they brought me on to speak about sales confidence. And as you mentioned at the beginning, I love helping people activate their faith, their worth and their wealth. So money is a fun conversation. They brought me on to talk about sales confidence. And as I'm asking the members of the audience to tell me what's holding them back from selling, why aren't they showing up? Why aren't they taking a stand for themselves and asking for more of what they want? One woman stood up and she said, I don't want to offend anybody. And without missing a beat, it felt, I'm, to this, excuse me, today I feel like it was a very divine experience because I didn't even hesitate and I shouted back into the microphone, offend them, offend them. People are going to be offended that you even dare to dream. People are going to be offended that you want the promotion. People are going to be offended that you exist. Mm. So since they're already offended, you might as well let them be offended for you walking and living in your truth. And from there, permission to offend was born because I said, you have to give yourself permission to offend other people in support of your dreams. Mm, beautiful. And um, I know one of the things that your book talks about is the freedom framework, which um, you know, as people kind of walk that path of being more fearless in their communication, um, there's a whole mental battle that goes down, right? Like fear and doubting yourself and guilt. So I'm curious, what is your freedom framework? I know you talk about this, this in chapter one and, um, how can people start bringing this into these moments where they are taking that step? Mm, great question. So here's the thing. We are creating stories all day, every day about our, about our experiences based on our perception and our programming and experiences. So we will take, I'll just give you an example. My father, um, he didn't abandon me, but my, when I was three and a half years old, my biological mother died of AIDS. My dad also had AIDS. And so when my dad gave me up to my godmother to raise, immediately I interpreted it as he abandoned me. As a three-year-old, you don't think my dad abandoned me, right? You just know that there's an absence. Mm -hmm. Years later, I began to tell people, yeah, my father abandoned me, which by the way, Ashley was a lie. I saw him. I saw him at least once a year. He wasn't not in my life, but because of the stories, the upbringing, 
conversations that I heard other people have, things I saw on TV, I interpreted his absence as abandonment. Mm. And, and this is what we're doing all day. I can give you another example. And actually, this example is in the book. And every time I think of it, it makes me laugh so hard. But my husband and I were driving one day and I told him to make a left turn. And he's ignoring me. He's not listening. He's not making the left turn. And I lose it. And I'm like, forget it. Let's just go home. You never listen to me. And then a couple hours later, I go up to him and I'm like, I'm, I'm telling myself a story that you think I'm stupid or you don't care what I have to say. So which one is it? Mm. And in the book, I, I break down. But what ends up happening is we are holding on to our stories in an attempt to be right because the ego does not want to be wrong. And that keeps us in bondage. Mm. That keeps us in captivity. And it keeps us disconnected from the people that we genuinely create connection and community with. So in the framework for freedom, I have you just do this very simple exercise and you ask yourself, what happened? Okay, so let's look at my dad. What happened was my mom died. Mm. Okay, what else happened? My dad gave me to my godmother so she could raise me because he was dying. That's what happened, right? Mm. Okay, so what's the story? The next question that you ask yourself is, what's the story I'm telling myself about this circumstance or situation? Well, the story is my dad abandoned me. The sto- And then there are more stories, right? The story is that uh, everyone I love leaves me. The story is I, I don't get to be loved. Mm-hmm. The story is that I'm an or- orphan, even though I had a mother, right? But these are the stories. And then you start listing out the facts, not how you feel about it, not what you think it means. It's only the pure fact. Mm. The fact is my father had AIDS. The fact is he was on welfare. Mm. The fact is he could not raise me. The fact is my godmother could. Mm. Oh, look at that. None of that has, has anything to do with abandonment, rejection, love, none of that. Those are just the facts. Once you have the facts, then you can ask yourself, are there elements of my story that are true or are, or are some of that just perception because of how I felt, because of the meaning that I assigned to him giving me to her? Mm. And I assigned a lot of meaning there. So in the book, I, I, there are a couple more steps to it, but that's the, the basic framework to get you started. And then I ask you some more questions just to help you come to completion and come to freedom. So now I I know without a shadow of a doubt, I wasn't abandoned Mm -hmm. at all. And in fact, when you do this work and you continue to get curious, one of the things I also say is that curiosity is the key to clarity. Mm -hmm. So when you continue to get curious about this, I started asking my, I call my my godmother, my mom, because she raised me. She is my mom. Okay. So I asked my mom, like, you know, why did he do that? Did he ever talk to you? Did this ever happen? I started getting, I wanted an understanding of what could have been happening. Was there more to the story than my side of the story? And she said, you know, one time he was going to let me adopt you. And I waited for him and waited for him downtown. This is back in the day, no cell phones, no pagers or anything, right? You're just waiting and you get stood up. And she said, and I waited for hours and he didn't show up. So I went back home and I called him and he said, I'm so sorry. 
I just can't give her up. Mm. And I thought that that was such an interesting revelation because here I had been telling myself the story that he gave me up Mm. and that he abandoned me. And he was telling himself a story that as long as I don't give her up for adoption, I never gave up on her. Mm. And I'm so free. Yeah, that's, it's so, it's, it's amazing to kind of realize how much we carry these stories with us for years and make them a part of our identity. So, I mean, what an invitation for anybody listening, not only to get the book, but to check the facts right now on some mm-hmm. of the stories that they're telling themselves about their life, about who they are, about who people are for them. Um, mm-hmm. You have another framework about empathetically offending someone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I love a good framework and you are just full of them. So I can't help but ask. Um, I know that you have four different kind of archetypes of people who offend. Can you talk about those and give us a little bit about the framework? And I'm so glad that you brought that up because you also brought up the word identity. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I lean into a lot because if we are going to start giving ourselves permission to offend, if we're going to change careers. I know that, you know, people listening to this podcast are thinking about the direction that they're going to take in life. If you're going to give yourself permission to do that, you have to get rooted and reconnected to your identity, the truth of your identity, not who people told you you should be, need to be, had to be in order to be socially accepted. And so once we, we talk about that in chapter two, but once we get into chapter four, we talk about the empathetic offender. And I give you this framework. And what I remind people is that we had to become certain people. We had to take on certain identities in order to stay part of the pack growing up. And I'll give you an example. I'm Puerto Rican and I grew up in a real... New Yorkian, Puerto Rican home. My mom was raised on the island. So from first generation American, okay? And we had this, uh, children are meant to be seen, not heard. And when we went out with family, friends, even family, I could not speak unless spoken to. And the other thing was, uh, children do not belong in grown folk conversation. And if I so much as even tried to express an opinion, I would get the look. Ashley, do you have a, did your parents ever give you a look? Oh, yeah. Okay, right? So I, I would get the look. And so what that taught me was that I needed to be the pleaser. Mm-hmm. And so there are four identities, right? You have the critic, the pleaser, the wounded, and the empathetic. Hey, U-Turners, this episode is sponsored in part by our friends over at Organifi. My absolute favorite product has got to be their chocolate and their vanilla protein powder. Due to my diagnosis of Lyme disease, I'm really careful with what I put in my body on an ongoing basis, and I smiled from ear to ear when my doctor read the ingredients on the back of their powder and gave it a thumbs up. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, almost no sugar. It's, it's kind of perplexing that it actually is something at all. Their chocolate protein powder, I love to put with nut milk, cashew butter, and frozen blueberries, while their vanilla is so good with peanut butter, frozen strawberries, and nut milk. This smoothie is my fix when I'm hungry anytime or when I just have a sweet tooth. Just so good. I mean, here's the thing. It's tempting to turn to that second or third cup of coffee, 
But the truth of the matter is that caffeine can only do so much. At some point, we need to look at the root cause of our fatigue. And it turns out the two main factors in low energy are chronic stress and lack of nutrition. Organifi's clean, organic superfood blends address these problems with adaptogenic herbs and mushrooms to help you balance your cortisol levels associated with stress, and they make it easier with one scoop of protein powder to add so many more nutrients into your day. If you'd like to grab yourself some protein powder or really any of their incredible products, just head on over to Organifi.com slash U-Turn. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash Y-O-U. T-U-R-N, and make sure you use the code U-TURN at checkout for 20% off. And think of this framework as like the four quadrants, right? So at the top peak of the quadrant, you are operating in high personal truth. This is, you know who you are, you know what you stand for, your identity is rooted in truth. You are self-assured and you're owning it. At the lower end, at the bottom of the quadrant is low truth. This is where maybe you're not so sure of who you are. Mm-hmm. You're not walking in truth. You are not really speaking up or living the way that you truly desire to. And if that's where you are, you're probably feeling a lot of frustration and you're probably feeling very stuck in life right now. Mm-hmm. And then if we go left to right in the quadrants, on the left, you have low faith. This means like you have great ideas, you have things that you want to do, but you never take action on them. Or if you start to take action, you quickly walk it back. Mm. And then on the right side, the far right is high faith. You're out there, you're loud, you're proud, you're, you're owning it. You take risks. You're willing to be rejected. You are, you embrace failure. You actually like the high of the chase. Okay. So if we look at the top left and we talk about the critic, the critic is operating in high truth, but low faith. Mm. These are the people that are very indecisive. They are perfectionists. There's a lot of negative self-talk. There's a lot of comparisonitis. There's blame, shame, and they above all fear judgment. Now, you know who had to live in this quadrant growing up or even now as an adult are um, people that come from really negative environments. Mm. And the only way to stay part of that crew is to participate in gossip, Mm. to participate in talking down on other people. Mm. You actually know how you feel, but you do not have the faith to say, this is wrong. We shouldn't be talking like this. We shouldn't be thinking like this. We shouldn't be nitpicking. So, but, but in order to not lose the connection, and here's the thing, why is it that we're so hungry for this connection? Because we're wired that way. We were wired to believe the brain actually thinks that we're still living in primitive times to an extent, and that if we get disconnected from the community, we're going to lose the food and then we're going to die because that's how our ancestors lived, right? Mm. If you were not part of a pack, you died. You didn't have the hunters and the gatherers and the whatevers. So... The next identity that I talk about is the pleaser. That was me growing up. Mm-hmm. I had to be the pleaser because if I didn't, if I didn't be the pleaser, I would get the look and I would probably get a big old fuakata. Fuakata is like a smack, right? A smackdown from your Puerto Rican mom. Mm-hmm. When you are operating as the pleaser, you have low self-integrity. That means that you're not great at keeping your promise to yourself. 
you also break boundaries. Not with other people, God forbid, you would never break a boundary with another person, but you would compromise and break your boundaries repeatedly if it meant you were showing up for other people. Now, here's the plot twist of the pleaser is that when you're operating as the pleaser, you tend to be a giver and you love giving, you love serving because that's where you found love. That's where you found acceptance. And I'm not here to tell you to stop being a server or a giver. I'm, I'm a giver. <laughs> I'm a pleaser. But what you want to do is start to really connect to your truth and start to have the faith enough to believe that you are such an amazing person that even if you put up a few boundaries, even if you kept your promises to yourself, even if you gave a little less, just a fraction less, the people in your life would still love and accept you. Mm. And that's their work. Pleasers mm. also deal with um, a lot of fear of rejection, negative self-talk, a lot of false starts, right? You start a new job, you're all excited and you think this is it. And then something happens and there's a sabotage and you, you get set back or you didn't get the promotion. And then you think, okay, new year, new me. And you try again and, and you seem to continuously hit this wall. It's because you have not really tapped into the truth of who you are and you haven't expressed it out loud. Mm. I have to say, like, do you think that the critic, you said that the critic is a perfectionist and I imagine the pleaser might be somewhat of a perfectionist sometimes as well, because mm -hmm. they want to be seen as helpful and they don't want to sit in the discomfort of saying no. Um, of not being available to help. So would that, would you say that pleasers also have that or is that more so a critic trait? I would say it's a critic trait. I would say the pleaser would want to be a perfectionist, but they would never be able to be the perfect. They would never even get close to perfection because they are not operating in any kind of truth. Mm. Too much of a false start there to get even close to perfection. The critics actually get close. Mm -hmm. The critics are achievers. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. The critics are going to do the things, right? Um, the pleasers want to be perfect and they have a, a fear of rejection, but they actually don't aim for perfection because the, the ideas, that negative self-talk that they have is so strong that I actually believe a pleaser could be quite extraordinary um, and without giving up their desire to help other people, if they would just own like 50% more of their truth would change their lives completely. Mm, beautiful. Okay. And then I know you also have the third identity for offenders, which is the wounded. I'm very curious about this one. Tell me a little bit more. Oh, girl, this is me in my teens and early 20s. Ooh, the, <laughs> wounded, <laughs> the wounded offender is someone who is a performer. They are very charismatic. They're outspoken. They're passionate. They are often called abrasive. You know, like, oh, you're a little too much. The wounded are the people that like, they're just a little too much. You're so extra, you're too much. Um, they can sometimes come across as a one-upper or high and mighty. They can be viewed as judgmental because they have strong opinions and they're not afraid to tell people their opinions. The wounded can also be perceived as not a team player because the wounded wants attention. Mm. The wounded wants they're, they are operating in high faith. They have ideas. They, they are very 
big leaders, if you will. But what makes them wounded is that they're operating in low personal truth. So they have high truth about their convictions, right? World things, they, they'll be out there with the picket, picket signs and taking up the cross for everyone. But they haven't connected to the truth of how they really feel about themselves, mm. about the hurt, about the trauma. Typically, people that fall into this category are come from a marginalized or disenfranchised community and, or a trauma. They've had a lot of trauma that is unresolved despite the years and years of therapy that they've had. Mm. Because the thing about therapy, and this is, you're talking to someone who was in therapy for like 30 years. I, I still have a therapist, by the way. I, I recommend therapy. I think everybody needs it. Um, but the thing about therapy is that it doesn't often take help you take a look at where you are now, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't help you anchor into who you are now because you spend so much time trying to heal from who you were and what you lived. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. So the wounded, have, have you ever watched The Real Housewives of Atlanta? Yes. Okay, you know Kenya Moore? Yes. <laughs> She's the wounded offender. When the world feels crazy and chaotic, remember that you don't have to. You deserve to take control of your mental health and your physical health. Cured Nutrition is trying to make it easier for you to do exactly that. Formulated with their trinity of ingredients, a blend of full-spectrum cannabinoids, functional mushrooms, and adaptogens, Serenity Gummies are your answer to finding the calm in every storm. I've been so excited about Cured. They want you to feel good about feeling good. So they took their time in really formulating these Serenity gummies. They left out the artificial flavors, sugars, and dyes, and they replaced them with ingredients that actually live up to their clean label wellnessy word. When I'm relaxed, I perform better and I make better decisions in my work and overall my life. I just started taking these Serenity gummies and I find that in moments that I would normally stress out, I feel somehow calm and collected. Each gummy is packed with ashwagandha, a medicinal herb for fatigue, L-theanine, which supports stress relief, reishi, an adaptogenic stress buster, and so much more. Right now, Cured is extending an exclusive offer to the U-Turn community. You can grab a bag of Serenity gummies for 20% off by visiting curednutrition.com slash U-Turn. That's C-U-R-E-D nutrition, N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N dot com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N and use the coupon code U-Turn at checkout to save that 20%. Protect your peace, grab a gummy. Got it. Okay. I Let love me that. tell you why. Tell me Kenya more. is the perfect wounded offender because she is beautiful, charismatic. She was the Miss America. She, all these things. She will speak her mind like nobody's business, but you never really get to see her be vulnerable. Mm. You never really get to see her without the mask. You never get to see how she really truly feels when someone has hurt her, when someone has wronged her, because she does not want to be seen as weak. The wounded are also the strong ones. So if you are the strong one in your friend or family group, you probably have shown signs of the wounded. And listen, that's fine. One thing I like to say and remind people is that it's not so much that you're trying to get out of these quadrants or, or if you're in your wounded identity or pleaser or critic that you're wrong. The goal is to recognize, oh, wait a minute. 
I'm le- I'm showing up as a critic right now. I'm showing up as a pleaser. I'm showing up wounded. What do I need to do to get back to my truth and to activate the empathetic offender within me? Mm. So the empathetic offender operates and lives in high personal truth and high faith. Mm-hmm. They are deeply rooted in their identity. They too are charismatic. Um, they can be outspoken. By the way, I feel like introverts, um, sometimes people mistake introverts as not being charismatic or passionate, and that's couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just more observant and they're more intentional about when they show you their passion and speak out. So I just want to make sure that extroverts know how to do. I'm an I am a social extrovert. So I know how to be extroverted and I know how to like socialize with people and start conversations, but I prefer a lot of by myself time. I'm Mm. super, I like to be in words. So I just wanted to give that little nugget for people that are unsure about introverts. But um, when you're in the empathetic offender, you, um, you are able to hold space for two truths to coexist. And so the way that I like to say it is your truth, Ashley, does not make me a liar. Mm. And my truth doesn't make you a liar. We just disagree. We just have a fundamental difference of beliefs. And if you and I can find something that we do believe in and something that we do agree on, then we can put our energy towards building a friendship and connection around the things that we do agree on and that we do both care about. And that way we can make an impact in that area. Mm -hmm. And we don't even have to engage in the things that separate and divide us. Mm -hmm. I love this so much. Okay. And You know, I also, you know, when you talk about all these different personas, um, Mm -hmm. you, it sounds like becoming the empathetic offender might not be like the default setting for most people. I mean, do you think that most people, like, what is the likelihood? Yeah. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about how do we start to transition from the critic, from the pleaser, from the wounded and into Mm -hmm. the empathetic offender? Yeah, let me tell you why it's not the default, first of all. Because from childhood, we are trained not to speak our truth. We can't even go to the bathroom in school without raising our hand and asking for permission. Yeah. Something that the body needs to do. So it's very unlikely that we're being brought up as empathetic offenders right now. So how we do it is first, I encourage you to question every belief that you have. Question it. Ask yourself, why do you believe that? Ashley, you and I have spoken about this. You know, I'm a God girl. I'm a Christian. And I ask myself weekly, honey, weekly, why do I believe in the Bible? Because this book trips. (laughs) This book trips. This book says some really crazy off the wall things. Why is that? And I remember one time I went to, I was going to Bible study when I lived in the desert in 29 Palms and it was a bunch of old people, right? Cause that there's not, we, we shout out to 29 Palms. Okay. We'll just keep it at that. So there's a bunch of old people and I'm the youngest person in the group. And I keep raising my hand and asking questions every time the, the pastor reads a passage and all the old people are losing their patience with me. They're rolling their eyes like, oh, here we go again. You know, why can't this girl just accept the word as truth? 
And I think that that's dangerous. Mm. I think it's dangerous to just accept anything as universal truth without first examining why it is true for you. And I get in trouble sometimes with people when I say that because people want to argue, no, but there are some things that are true. And depending on the day, some days I might say like, okay, I love that for you. Um, I, I, I will give that to you. There are some things that I, I know you um, are passionate about being true and I'm going to keep working on that to see how they can be true for me. Because right now, I'm not there. Mm. And I, th- if you think about this, how do we know for sure what's real? What's true? How do we know, Ashley? How do you think? How do you define it? How do you define truth? I mean, I think that it's so subjective. It's your truth. It's what's true for you. Yes. But how do we argue with gravity? Mm. I think a lot of people base the truth on what they see and Mm -hmm. what they make it mean. What's interesting for me is after getting my meditation teacher training, um, I learned that we only see 0.0035 of the percent of the electromagnetic spectrum, meaning we, we don't really see much of what color is in front of us. So it's really messed with my beliefs around what I can see is true because there's so much I know we don't see. Mm. Well, that's kind of like, and I don't know that this is true. One of the things I love to say, and it was taught to me by uh, a former boss of mine when I was a waitress that he got from his Jewish grandmother. He always used to make a point to say, my Jewish grandmother taught me that, um, but trust, but verify. So I don't, I've read this before. I can't cite so, a source for Roosevelt. you. But there, well, yes. And, um, but the other, the, the point that I wanted to make before I said the trust, but verify is that I read somewhere that nothing is actually standing still. Like everything is moving, mm-hmm. but because of our perception, we perceive it as like hard, right? Like if I look at this table, no, like this table is solid. It's not moving, but there's like some science that explains that. Yes, actually every single molecule is moving, but at the rate of speed in which it's moving, it appears to be solid. That right there messed me up. Okay. Yeah. How do we know that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that, um, I think that having some sort of truth makes people feel safe. It makes us feel mm-hmm. grounded and, the real truth to get comfortable with is that everything is moving, like you said. So I, I love that. And um, when it comes to being like the empathetic offender, I know that there's a lot of people who they're going to feel so much discomfort, whether they're the critic or the pleaser or the mm-hmm. wounded. How does somebody even start communicating in a way that they can empathetically, you know, set a boundary, empathetically mm-hmm. move things forward in a way that is really honoring them? Mm-hmm. Okay, so chapter five is all about boundaries, and then chapter seven is all about offending with intention and the the communication and the language. The thing I want to make sure that people don't do is don't race to chapter seven, because if you don't do the identity work in chapter two, when you try to implement chapter seven, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Mm-hmm inevitably you're going to say the wrong thing, quote, the quote-unquote wrong thing in the quote-unquote wrong way. And then you're going to get into a disagreement and you're going to realize, oh my gosh, I didn't even mean that. 
Mm-hmm. Have you ever had that moment? It's like, I didn't mean that. Well, we say things that we don't mean because we are not spending enough time introspectively asking ourselves and questioning what is true for us. Mm-hmm. So, um, and actually, I didn't, I, I apologize. I didn't get to close the the loop on that. So I'm asking all these questions. Everybody's rolling their eyes. They don't like that I'm asking the questions. And I go to the pastor and I say, I don't think I should come anymore because these people don't want me here and I'm going to keep asking questions. And he said, that's exactly why you need to be here Hmm. because it's important to question your faith. And no religious leader had ever told me that before. Every other religious figurehead in my life had told me, you have to believe the Bible because it's the Bible. And that's what God said. And if you don't, you're going to go to hell and fire and brimstone. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time a religious figure said to me, question your faith often, because one of two things will happen. Either you'll become more convicted and believe even deeper, which will be good. Now you know what you believe in, or you'll decide it's not for you. And then you'll know too. Either way, you'll know, you'll know where you stand. You'll know what and why you believe. And that's important. Mm -hmm. And I never forgot that, that it's so important to know not just what you believe, but why you believe it. Mm -hmm. Because when you know why you believe something, that's where you can go into chapter seven and start having these conversations. So when we talk about setting boundaries, one of the things, and I break down, there's a full process in chapter five, like I said, for boundaries. But one of the things I want to encourage you to do is to enroll the person with whom you're setting the boundary in the vision as to why this boundary is going to benefit them. Mm. For Okay. Like you got to get them on board. They, it, what's in it for them? Isn't that, isn't that how we do resumes, right? What's in it for them? Yeah. Isn't that how we do life? Anytime we want to build a relationship, what's in it for them? So you, so you want to show the value of how your boundaries impacts your relationship and how it benefits this this connection that you have. I'll give you an example. My my babies. Children are the most interrupting, unaware, selfish little things on the planet. Because, but that's their job, right? They're kids. They don't know. The world does revolve around them. If you if you actually look at the world from a child's eyes, it's amazing. They are fascinated and curious about everything. And then we, worn out, tired old adults, beat their curiosity down by shutting them up and telling them you're asking too many questions because I said so. And we don't let, or don't make a mess. I love what um, Neil uh, Tyson, what's his last name? The astronaut. He says, "The, the worst thing we can do is not let a child make a mess. The best thing we can do is let them make a mess because they're going to learn so much about science, about responsibility. Anyway, so with my children, I have boundaries and it's very clear. Honey, if you will do your homework from this time to this time and let mommy finish these three things that I have to do, then a couple of things are going to happen. One, I'm going to make money. And don't we want to go and take that trip to Disney? Don't we want to go to Universal? Don't you want to be able to have a shopping spree at the Universal? By, by the way, you know how expensive it is to shop at Universal? Forget about it. you just giving them all your money. And they'll look at me and they'll say, yes, yes, I want to do a shopping spree. Yes, yes, I want to do all these things. Okay, great. 
So in order for us to have that, we've got to each be on our own for X amount of time. Do you think you can do that? Do you want to set an alarm together? And so we set an alarm together. Now my kids are older now, but this is when they were younger. We set an alarm together and then we go. As they get older, the boundary remains the same. The language is a little bit different. Hey, at 8.30, we're going to have family game night. Every night in my home, 8.30, family game night. Of course, there are exceptions. Of course, boundaries are meant to be bent from time to time. But once you create the standard and you show them what's in it for them, people are more likely to adhere to it. Mm. That's interesting. There's such a big difference, and I always say this on the show, between boundaries and barriers. You know, some people have a belief that if they set a boundary, that it's this rigid, strong wall when really a boundary is just somebody's personal limit. It can be kind of gray. It doesn't have to be black and white and it's subjective. And so it's so important, I think, with boundaries to be able to say, where do I start and where do I end? What can I do here? And I love how you talk about the empathetic offending where you're kind of explaining the win up behind the boundary. You're saying, here's the boundary and here's why, and here's how it's a win for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I will say one thing. Sometimes it's not a win for everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I what I was about me. to ask you. You're like following yeah. perfectly. When it's not a win for everybody, this is where, this is where the empathetic offender comes in. And you just get to say... I really care about you. I want to be there for you. I I wish I had the capacity to drop everything at a moment's notice and be there for you every day in every way, but I can't. And so for my own self-preservation, I have to put this boundary up. Same thing with, I work with clients that have, you know, family issues. And so one of the things I say is first set a boundary within yourself. Do you know that you don't always have to communicate the boundary with someone? You have to communicate it with yourself first and just uphold it. So the first conversation I'll have with someone who's having like a family drama and, you know, my family doesn't support this and that, I would say, then don't talk about that with them. So how we can put up a boundary without having the boundary conversation is to first disengage from the thing that's causing the rift. Or the thing that's causing to engage mm-hmm. on a level that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you're so right. It's like, um, I think sometimes we want people to hold things for us that they don't have capacity emotionally, mm-hmm. spiritually, whatever mm-hmm. it is, communication wise to hold. And we mm-hmm. make them wrong and we go through pain. And I think our parents are such an example of this. I had Dr. Margaret on the show, Dr. Margaret Paul, to talk about the mother wound. Because I think mm-hmm. this shows up so much with our attachment figures is we want to confide in them or we want to be able to share something and they just can't do it. And we keep trying again and again and again, kind of like that bad piece of cake that you keep having a bite, hoping it tastes better. <laughs> and it just doesn't. Um, and so I love what you're saying where sometimes the boundary just looks like not bringing up those things. And in yeah. a way, it's like a, an act of respect and love saying like, I know that this person just isn't a fit for this topic. So why try and force it? Yeah, exactly. For uh, respect and love for both of you, for yourself as well. And so I really stress the importance of having boundaries with yourself. I talk about not being your own boundary bully. So sometimes we set a boundary, other people agree and co-sign on the boundary, and then we're the ones breaking it. Why? Because the pleaser identity is coming out. 
the mm. pleaser wants to wants that hit of dopamine that we get from giving, from helping. Um, because when you help or you give something to someone, there's typically some sort of a thank you or a reward from the other person. And that gives us that hit of dopamine. And that's that little quick fix that we're looking for. Mm. First of all, I love that we're talking about boundaries and we can hear police sirens going off in the background. <laughs> it feels kind of like part of the vibe. And I'm um, so Miami Beach City sounds. But I, I want to also say, um, you know, I've actually been living this as of recent. Um, a lot of friends have been getting married and some of them are having multiple bachelorette parties, multiple trips that I'm traveling. And I just hit a wall with it where I was like, I am so overextended financially. It's so expensive for all these trips. The wedding room block is like a thousand dollars a night, like no can do. What? Yeah, it's just I'm exaggerating. It's eight hundred a night, but still. Point being, it's it like might as well be a thousand. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I just feel like so much so what you're saying because it's been so hard, and I've had to have some hard conversations of people I love saying, "Hey, I I don't want to be a bridesmaid because no matter how much I love you, I can't afford this." Like this is just yeah. not financially abundant for me. Um, and and by the way, not being able to do something, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It's that you don't choose to use your resources on right. it, right? Like I just right. started investing in real estate. That's where I want my resources to go. Um, right. So this kind of brings me into this question that I'm sure a lot of people ask you is, how do you stop caring what other people think so much? How do you stop that addiction to validation to, mm. to being loved, especially because by the way, my love language is words. So I think a lot of people who, you know, maybe they, that's how they feel love. They understand love is through words. So what are some, some words of wisdom you have around this piece of stopping caring so much so that you're free to set the boundary? Well, you don't stop caring. You shift your thoughts around the care that you have. So I think that's a really important distinction. Tell me it's not that I it's not that I don't care because this listen, okay, so first of all, we talk about that in the book. There's a section called um ending the validation validation addiction, right? So I talk about getting sober from validation addiction. Mm -hmm. And the the method that I teach you to replace it is instead of seeking validation, seek verification. Um, and I'll get into that into a second, but I, I want to talk about this point that you bring up of, but how do we stop caring? Listen, it's our job at times to care what people think. It is a hundred percent my job to care that my clients are having a good experience. Mm -hmm. So how can I not? It would be foolish and out of integrity. It's absolutely my business to care whether or not my husband feels, thinks, believes that I am being the wife that he needs me to be. And by the way, it's his business. It's absolutely his business to care whether or not I think he's being the husband I need him to be. So there are moments and relationships in our lives where we, we don't want to not care what they think or what they feel. Rather, we want to first very clearly understand what we do care about, right? So what do I care about? I do care that my husband is being satisfied and fulfilled in, in me, with me as a wife. However, I also care about my mental health. I care about my energy. 
I care about my capacity, and I care about reciprocity. So right there, I have four metrics that I can use that have nothing to do with validation. So the thing about validation is that it's a a desire that we have. It's an emotional desire rooted in being right and approved. Verification is just really more of a scientific approach. We're either on track or we're not on track. Hmm. Okay. So I might say to my husband, hey, honey, when it comes to um, keeping up with the house, what are your expectations of me as a wife? And then he'll say, whatever. And then I can say, I'm so glad we had this conversation. That's something I'm not going to be able to do. I already know that my ministry is not to be the kind of wife that cleans the house. So let's talk about ways that we can adjust the budget and get a housekeeping service in here so that when you walk in the house, you feel at peace because the house is up to your standards, but it doesn't compromise my truth or who I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to show up in this world. Mm, love this so much. Okay. Um I know that you have so many frameworks in your book for people to work on this. Where can everyone find your book, learn more about you? And is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to share with everyone before we go? Oh my gosh, there's so much. You know what? Can I just tell them um, one thing you said, how do we have these conversations? I want to give you just this one thing. So to get you started is that in order to have a conversation where you're risking offending someone else, you first decide what you want from the conversation. Hmm. How do you want the conversation to end? And that, and then there are some more guide points, um, guideposts in the book to help you navigate that. Um, the best place to find me would be to uh, be over at rachelluna.biz. Uh, you can buy the book at permissiontooffend.com. If you want to hear more about these conversations, subscribe to my podcast, also called Permission to Offend. And I'm at Girl Confident on Instagram. DM me. I respond to people and I'd love to hear from you. Whoop, whoop. Thank you again for coming onto the show. Thank you for having me. I love you. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-turns. We'll see you next week.